If you would, open your Bibles to Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, chapter 3. Last week, we concluded a short study through the prophet Haggai, and now we come to Colossians, and I will read Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Hear what the Apostle commands. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. So why are we coming to this text? Why this text? Why now? I think in many ways it answers the question that is begged at the conclusion of our study through Haggai. So we spent two weeks in that book, and the first message was titled, Build God's House, because that's what the prophet says. God says through the prophet, build my house. And then uh, chapter 2 says, don't despise God's house. Don't think of it as nothing. Focus on it, even though it's not as glorious as it used to be. Don't despise it. Continue the work. And so the question I think that is begged as we concluded that series is, okay, great, we get it, pastor. We're supposed to build God's house, and it's not the physical building, it's the brothers and sisters. How then do we build God's house? What are we to do? So that's the first reason that we come to this text, that it answers the question at the end of the former series. Also, I think it mirrors what we've been prioritizing and focusing on this entire time since... uh, we came here. The first lengthy series we had that wasn't just verse by verse was on Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Spent about 10 or 12 weeks in that passage. If you remember it, I know I do. Uh, it, it, it mirrors this text almost perfectly for exactly how it is that we are to exhort one another every day is the central exhortation of Hebrews three thirteen. It also, this passage, so that's the second reason, this this flows along with the emphasis that we've had this whole time. Number three, and this should make sense, flowing on the heels of that, it also mirrors in large part our church covenant. Those of you who have recently been through the membership process or those of you who are members and saw the, the new church covenant that we embraced in late 2019 know that the one another's are very important to me as your pastor, but they're important to me because they're important to Jesus, that the way we obey Him as a community of new covenant believers is by keeping those one another commands. And so the church covenant really flows from all of those commands. And this text, verses 16 and 17, is a very helpful summary of all of those ideas. And I think this text also resets expectations for church. What, it is, what is it that we are even trying to do on a Sunday morning? Why do we have the classes that we have? Why do we do the things that we do in the way that we do them? This text answers that question, or at least shows us the way it ought to be and critiques the way we do it if it's not lined up with it. So understand what I'm saying by circling and spending weeks and weeks on these two passages, Hebrews 3, 12-14, and Colossians 3, 16, and 17. They're really important. If you hold those as bookends for all that you think about the church, you you will do well. It's not that we should create a Bible within the Bible, so to speak, but they're, they're such pithy and tight summaries that also speak to the reason why we should do all the things that we do as a church. So we come to this phrase, and the, the title of this message, as you can see, is the Word of Christ. This week, that will be our focus, just that one little phrase, the Word of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible is it strictly defined, and it's also used interchangeably in the Bible with several different phrases. Uh, You you might see it uh, interchanged, we'll see this in a little bit, between the faith 
or the truth that was taught to you, the truth of God, or, or even the gospel, the phrase that we're probably most familiar with. Uh, the word of Christ is used interchangeably with those in different places. Or the word of the Lord, uh, that also occurs. But understand, the word of Christ does not merely mean the Bible. I want to be very clear on this point. It doesn't just mean everything in this book. It's a little bit different. It's a little tricky to understand this. And, and, and also, it's more than just the mere gospel, right? At least in the sense that we mean it. Typically, when we say the word gospel, what we mean is the very personalized way that the message of salvation relates to us. The good news of how God in Jesus provided a sacrifice for our sins and forgiveness in Jesus so that we could live with him forever. That slice of the word of Christ is in fact part of the gospel, but the gospel and the word of Christ are bigger than just that. But that, that slice, is typically what we mean when we say gospel. So The word of Christ is, is bigger than that. And it's more than just the words of Christ. Okay, this is not an endorsement. This phrase, the word of Christ, is not an endorsement of like a red letter Christianity, right? Where what really matters to us is what Jesus said, right? And Paul and Peter and John, those guys over there, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're still important there, the Bible, but what Jesus said, the red letter, that's really important. That's not what this is saying. No, it has a more general meaning of the message regarding Christ, The message about him. It has to do with all of the works of God in Christ. That's what this phrase means. In short, it's all of God's communication to us understood in and through the person and work of Jesus. I'm going to say that again because that's my working definition for what the word of Christ is. It is all of God's communication to us. So that would mean all the Bible, but further, understood in and through the person and work of Jesus. So that's what the Word of Christ is. And I hope you can see and sense now why it's important to spend a good portion of our time talking about it. So how does the Word of Christ relate to All the rest of Christianity. I mean, just look at chapter 3. We could focus on anything else in this chapter, right? I mean, just look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And love is is an undergirding theme of the whole chapter. We could focus on love. We could focus on peace. Gratitude. I mean, gratitude is arguably the most frequently mentioned theme in Colossians 3. Thankfulness in your hearts to God and be thankful and with thanksgiving. I mean, that's actually the, the first text that we preached from when we moved up here in November of 18 because uh, it was around Thanksgiving. Just this theme of gratitude is, is there. So why not talk about one of those things? Why focus on the Word of Christ? By, by doing so, by focusing on this phrase in these verses, I'm making a claim. Okay, I'm saying something by focusing in this way. I'm saying that the word of Christ has central significance for all of the Christian life. Central significance for all the Christian life. In short, the way that you get the peace of Christ, the way that you have the love of Christ, the way that you grow in gratitude, is by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how it works. That's the relationship between these two things. So, understand this. It is Christ himself who equips us for every good work. Right? It's not, it's not a, a message necessarily or words or precise wording of things or experiences. It is Christ himself. Paul says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17. Now, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself And God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and deed. The way that you are equipped for every good work and deed isn't through some thing coming out of Jesus necessarily. It is Christ himself. He equips you. He does the work in you by his spirit to enable you to do all his work. But how does that happen? 
How does Christ himself equip us for every good work? This is further underscoring what is the relationship between the word of Christ and the rest of Christianity? How is it that Jesus Christ himself comforts and establishes our hearts? It is by his word, specifically the word regarding him, the message about him. That could be a whole sermon unto itself, but I, I, I want you to see that this is, this is the meaning of the parable of the sower. The, the sower sows the word. The word goes out and it either takes root or it doesn't. But that which gives life, that's what which brings fruit, is the word. You can also see this in uh, Romans 10. Much of what Jesus said in the upper room regarding his word. But I want to give you two quotes. This this is to help you see how the word of Christ, his word, is what brings everything else for the Christian life. Jesus says this in John 8. If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciple. And He's speaking to a group of Jews who had come to believe in him and explaining their unbelief, which which is fascinating. You'll have to read John 8 to really see how this happened. These are Jews who came to believe in him, but they're unbelieving in their belief, which is fascinating. But explaining that unbelief, he says this, You seek to kill me because my word, singular, finds no place in you. So match those Two things up. This is the defining issue. How you relate to the word of Christ is the defining issue. Jesus creates in these two statements a binary. If my word, singular, finds a place in your heart, then you are truly my disciple. If my word finds no place in you, you'll want to kill me. That's the defining issue. So we need to know what this word is and how we relate to it because that's the dividing issue. You're truly his disciple or you want to kill him. You want nothing to do with him. You want him to go away. We need to know what it means. We need to know what the content of this word is if we're going to understand and obey this very important command. And this is all preparing us as a church to keep the exhortation, the the imperative, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So in order to obey that, we need to know what the content of this word is. So, there's no better way to do that for our purposes than to let Paul in Colossians define the word of Christ for us. Here's how Douglas Moo makes this point. He's a commentator, kind of a rock star in the biblical scholar realm, which is a thing. Um, He says this, Paul means not the word or message that Christ proclaimed, but the message that proclaims Christ The message about the Messiah. Paul uses this phrase to summarize the authentic teaching about Christ and his significance. And immediately, we have a relevant example of which in the first two chapters of Colossians. And I I would include chunks of chapter 3 as well. So he's saying that chapters 1 and 2 are an example of what Paul means by the word of Christ. And so when we come to the command in chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, we should think of what he's already taught about Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, and I would say 3 too. So let's do that. I'm going to give you some instructions here. This is highly unusual. If you're a visitor, I'm sorry. But I want you to set aside your bulletin and your notes and your devices, and I just want you to pick up the text. There should be a copy of God's Word in front of you. If the only way you can do it is on your device, that's okay, but I know it's very easy to have your own personal Bible study on your device. At least I'm confessing in that because there's too many tools. But I just want us to go through Colossians and I will discuss the Word of Christ line by line. We're going to try to get through the whole thing up to Chapter 3, verse 16. So we'll see if we can do it. Understand, this, this is an attempt to let the Scriptures speak for itself, let the Apostle Paul speak for himself, and answer for us, what is the Word of Christ? What should we know about it? How big should it be in our brains? 
So follow along with your eyes landing on the page as we read through this. I'll read the introduction quickly. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. We'll pause there. So, in verses 3 and 4, you see, we saw that Paul thanks God for them. It's something that God accomplishes in the lives of his people to bring about all of these blessings. So he sees evidences of salvation in their life, and that leads him to thank God. So they should really be understand, understood, I think, as blessings of salvation. Look, look at what he thanks God for with respect. The love that you have for all the saints, and before that, your faith in Jesus Christ. He sees that in them, and he thanks God for them. And notice that the link to all of these blessings, how he comes to verse 5, is through hearing. Of this, see he says at the beginning of that sentence in the middle of verse 5, of this, of this hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. See, those are interchangeable phrases with this word of Christ. Look at verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. There's another phrase used interchangeably with the word of Christ. All of the blessings that matter are from God. And he, he kind of sees the, this message, this word, as a, as a sort of vine or plant that is spreading unstoppably and producing fruit abundantly. It's taking over the world, and it's bringing life with it. And here's the point, I think, of the verses, verses 3 through 14, is that the word of Christ brings every spiritual blessing. All the blessings that matter are from God. Look, look at verses 7 through 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Not only is it the blessings of love and faith in Jesus Christ that come through the hearing of this message, but it's also faithful ministers. Epaphras and Paul himself are compelled by the word of Christ to love the church in this way. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, heard what? Heard of their love and their faith, their love towards all the saints and their faith toward God. From the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So he's not just thanking God for them. He is praying for them somehow. He's asking God to do something. What is he asking? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He's not praying for them to experience anything different than they have already experienced. He just wants them to experience more and more of it. He wants the fruit of being converted, the fruit of this vine or plant that is growing throughout the whole world. He's wanting to see that fruit increase all the more. So... What is this knowledge of his will or this knowledge of God? What he's meaning here is the knowledge of his will for your salvation. He's not talking about 
He's not praying for the church in Colossae to come to know the secret hidden will of God like for their lives. We, we talk a lot about this in our uh, church parlance today. You've got to know God's will for your life. You've got to know God's calling for your life, all this kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the knowledge of God, him specifically, strengthened with power according to his glorious might, for all endurance, patience, and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He wants us to have knowledge of what God has done. This word of Christ is not something that merely has a mechanistic effect on you. It is something that you must know in order to experience its blessings. That's why he prays for them to increase in their knowledge. He wants them to know it so that they can increase in their blessing. The message itself is the message of God accomplishing a vast and final victory over the power of the enemy. Look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God accomplished a liberation. He freed us. It's a reclamation that is violent, that he triumphed over We're going to see in a little bit the powers of darkness. He has transferred us. It's a very jarring terminology that he has taken you out of the domain of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of his beloved son. Something he has done. All of these blessings are brought through faith in the gospel, the word of truth, the grace of God in truth. The word of Christ. See, he's using all these phrases overlapping each other. In whom, referring to the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So to summarize again, verses 3 through 14, the word of Christ brings every spiritual blessing. Your love towards the Lord Jesus and the saints, your faith in the Lord Jesus, your increasing of the knowledge of God, your being liberated from the domain of darkness, all of these spiritual blessings are accomplished for you through the word of Christ. The second section that we see in Colossians is, I think has this central message, that the word of Christ is about Christ. It may sound a little bit redundant for you. It may sound odd to say, but it is a point that really does need to be made, especially nowadays, where we think that God is mainly about us, that Christianity is mainly about how we feel and what we experience, or that the gospel is mainly a rescue message. The word of Christ is about Christ. Let's read it. Verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be Preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Where are you in that text? I don't have any notes on this section. I just say, keep comments to five minutes, because... There's just so much here. Notice a few things. The pronouncement of what is going on in the world is about the revealing or the coming out party, as it were, of Jesus Christ. He is being revealed to all creation through the mighty working of God in the gospel message itself and in the Christ event. All things are created through him and for him. So before there was a cross, before there was an Adam and Eve, before there was a need for redemption, everything that is created from the throne room in heaven to the starting of the eternal temple that is there, streets of gold, whatever you want, the heavenly beings, all of it created for Jesus. 
Not just for God's glory in some general sense. For Jesus Christ. Through Him and for Him. He's not just the agent of creation. It is His. He's the point of creation. We really do need to begin to think that way. And to think clearly about what that means. He is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. So He's not just up there in heaven now waiting for us to finish out the course of human history with missions and kind of authorizing Him to come back. He is holding it all together by the word of His power, we hear from Hebrews. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And here's where we could spend just a really long time. God's purpose in creating the universe is to make Christ preeminent. That raises a whole host of questions. First, wasn't he already preeminent? Why did God need to do something in order to make Christ preeminent? The point is this. This whole creation, the whole universe, is a play, a demonstration, a manifestation of Christ's preeminence. What will unfold as a result of all history, not just human history, but everything that exists is the preeminence of Christ. That word preeminent means the best and highest of all conceivable things. So, since that is what God is up to in the creation of the world, since God, all of his divine energy is focused on this idea of making Christ preeminent, of exalting him, as Paul says in a similar fashion in Philippians, that At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. If that's what God is doing and all of his creative energy and his power and his will is focused on making Christ preeminent, then what is your life about? And if you are trying to make your life about something other than the preeminence of Christ, you are opposed to the power of God. That's what sin is. You're disagreeing with God that he has a right to make your life about the preeminence of Christ. And this is why anything that is not from faith is sin. Because you can try to be a good person as long as you want and as intensely as you want. But if it's not making Christ preeminent, it's against God's power and his might and his right over your life to do with it as he pleases as creator and God. Your life must Make Christ preeminent. And here's the thing. It will. Either as a worshiper around the throne or in hell, demonstrating his unending, unfathomable, holy justice. He would rather that you be spared. He would rather that Christ be exalted in his power to save in your life. He would rather be preeminent in your life in that way. Next, we see this. The word of Christ is personal. It's very personal. It's not just at this cosmic level of the reason that God created the world and making Christ preeminent. These these vast Movements of divine energy from before there was such a thing as time to when time will be no more. It is also very personal. Look at verse 21 through 23. And you, and you, (laughs) who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Consider, based on this passage, what you bring to the table. (laughs) Nothing good. We are not the lost, in the sense of like a, a... 
a lost puppy that can't find its way home. We're the lost in this sense, and the imagery here is literally damning. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, alienated. But those who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, look at the, the, the radical change at a personal level that has happened because of the word of Christ. He has now reconciled and is but made right in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, not, not alienated anymore, but holy, not doing Uh, not hostile in mind, but blameless and no longer doing evil deeds, but above reproach before him. A radical change that is taking back. But but notice this, it's very important. Who's doing the verbs here? Who, Who is the actor? It's not you. It's not me. We don't reconcile ourselves. We don't make ourselves holy. Jesus does this by His Word. This is the message of Christ. What He accomplishes through His work, what God is accomplishing in and through Him, that is the Word of Christ. That is what accomplishes this radical change in our lives. And you can see the link that there is with verse 5. You can go back up to verse 5. Because of the hope laid up in heaven for you, of this you... You have heard before in the word of truth. So they hear this message. And verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. So the message that they heard, the message proclaimed to them regarding what God has done in Christ, what God is doing in Christ. If they continue in the faith, if they hold fast to the word of Christ, this indeed will be the case in their lives forever. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So so you see, gospel and faith are used interchangeably there, all building to this idea of the, the Bible's teaching, the true, authentic teaching of the message of Jesus. That's how it all becomes ours, through faith. I want to say this now before we bury the lead. That's how it all becomes ours, is trust or belief or buying into this message. This is how all of it becomes ours, and this is the most personal aspect. Trusting Christ in view of all His claims and God's claims about Him and His plans for Him and you. I think we can belittle the message of Christ, the Word of Christ, when we just boil it down to something like, Believe in Jesus, you receive forgiveness of your sins, live with Him forever. If you don't have a full, robust vision of what God is doing in Christ, why He's created the world, what your eternal destiny is, and why it's that way, and why it's about Jesus and not about you, you can belittle the Word of Christ. The gospel, or having faith in Christ, means nothing less than hearing this full, robust word of Christ and how you're invited to be a part of it and saying, I'm in. This is mine. Some of you may have never had a real and true I'm in moment. For you, it's I'll pray a prayer, I'll sign a card. Maybe to make mommy and daddy happy, or don't want hell, but you've never seen this, and it's been talked about. You've read it in the Bible, this this full, robust vision of what God is doing in Christ, and, and how He summons you to be a part of that, and to enter into it, and to make Christ preeminent through your being reconciled to Him, and you have, you're just standing on the sidelines, not saying, I'm in. You, you're just not even sure if you believe it at all. That's what faith means, though. Fully entrusting yourself to Christ in view of His claims about you and about the world and about Himself. Next, we see that the Word of Christ builds and guards the church. 
Beginning in verse 24, now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God, see, there's another interchangeable phrase, fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And I I think that section continues to chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In verse 24, we have this very strange statement about what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, if you look at the grammar and the logic of verse 25 and 26, you see that the only thing that is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that it needs to be proclaimed. You can't add anything to the value or power or veracity of Christ's death on the cross, but the message itself needs to be spoken. It needs to be communicated. It needs to be taken to people and massaged into their lives, of which I became a minister. To make the word of God fully known. Verse 27, we see Christ in you is the summary of all the future glories of our inheritance. Look at it again. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery. And if we were writing Colossians, we probably wouldn't write this tiny little statement at the conclusion of that buildup. Look at the buildup. Feel it. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. There's nothing better about Christianity. There's nothing beyond in Christianity Jesus Christ himself. He is the fullness of everything God has for you. There's nothing better or beyond him. And it is accomplished in them, in the Colossian church, and it's accomplished in us by hearing it faithfully proclaimed by Paul. And it's being put into their lives by each other. Is Christ in you your hope? We've set our minds, I think, on many alternative saviors, many alternative eternal states where Jesus being in there doesn't matter much to us at all. We just want to be liberated from whatever it is we hate. The hope of the mystery for the Gentiles is Christ in you. Verse 28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Faithful ministry is aimed at the final day. He says he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. The the grammar suggests that they're being presented to Christ. You can see this in Ephesians 5, that Paul's goal is to get people ready to be presented as a people to Christ. But the way that they're going to be able to be presented to Christ is to be mature in Christ. In verses 29 through uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the word of Christ, we've seen this already with Epaphras, the word of Christ builds and guards the church again by inspiring and empowering faithful ministers. 
Look at what he says in verse 29. For this, meaning you being mature in Christ, you understanding God's mystery hidden for ages, which is Christ in you. That's why I do what I do so that that might happen. And it's accomplished in me. I do it struggling with Christ's energy that he powerfully works within me. And what is Paul's motive and goal for the church at Colossae in Laodicea? What glorious purpose makes him get out of his sleeping bag or bed or cave or prison cell, as the case may be? What makes him do that and get to work every day, preaching and teaching and writing? Look at verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. He wants them to be encouraged in Christ. He wants this truth about God, this truth of what God has done in Jesus to encourage them. And he also wants them to be knit together in love so that they may have assurance. Look at how how it works. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, in order to, you could put that there with the word to, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding And knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, we have kind of an anticlimactic statement. Look at what you might expect. This buildup of all of these things. To be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the full assurance of understanding, of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Does that feel anticlimactic to you? This is the point. You must not, you cannot see Christ so you cannot see Jesus as the one who just brings you into all the blessings of God. You know that, that illustration, you have man over here on one side of the cliff, you have God over here on the other side, and there's a big chasm in between, and you, you plop the cross down in the middle, and we walk across the cross and get to all of God's blessing. There, there's a point for an illustration like that, no man comes to the Father except through me, but Jesus is not the one who just gets you into the blessings of God, He is the blessings of God. It's all in Him. All the riches of full assurance and understanding of God's mystery is Christ. He's the fullness. Instead of thinking about, think of this. We have have this idea of sanctification, of just becoming more holy. And that's true. But let's be more specific. Sanctification... More than just becoming more holy means coming to know the Holy One. Coming to have and be like and love the Holy One. You can't define holiness outside of Jesus. Can't be done. All deference to the natural philosophers, natural law and all that kind of stuff and apologetics. You can't have a meaningful definition of holiness outside of the person of Jesus. So becoming more holy, if you define that any other way than being more like Christ, it's worthless. Into verse 2, into verse 3, we see that any body of knowledge or wisdom that's not rooted in Him is worthless. All of God's wisdom and all of His knowledge is found in Jesus, in whom are hidden All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The church is built and it grows as it sinks its roots down deeply into the knowledge of the Lord himself. This is not some far off speculation of facts and figures or musings or opinions. If it does not begin... And go through and end in a deeper love and understanding of Christ, then it's not the wisdom of God and will not help you. And I would say, just as an aside, that wise ways of living, principles for life that don't speak of Christ, that don't terminate in deeper understanding of Him, that don't make Him preeminent, are one of the greatest enemies of this. There's a lot of wise teaching out there that will teach you how to live life, and you can maybe even benefit from it in the short term, but it's not holiness. Maturity in the church and personally is defined as becoming more firm in our faith in Christ. Look at it. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6. 
Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. It's not just about you getting saved, getting, getting it stitched on your, your shirt that you're now, you, you've got, a, you got a, like a press badge or something. As you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and build up, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the eternal spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him who is the head and rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you, here's what we bring to the table, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he set, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As a summary of chapter 2, verse 6 through 15, is that the word of Christ is about the victory of God. Sanctification or the life of the believer Becoming a Christian is defined in this way, walking in Him. There are, depending on how you count, 12 amazing, astounding things that Jesus does, that God does in Jesus for you. And they're, they're earth-shattering in their, their extent. They're almost unbelievable. All that God accomplishes in the world for blessing and curse and life and judgment, He does in and through Jesus because all the fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily. We saw earlier uh, that it was pleased to dwell in Him. Do you think that way about the incarnation? Or do you think of it as a degradation, a, a, a condescension, as it were, that, that somehow in Jesus there is less of God Because he's in the flesh. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It is as if all of God's power, all of God's wisdom, all of God's ways are somehow more manifest in the person and work of Jesus. Because that is how God is demonstrating his glory and accomplishing all of his work for all of creation is in and through that one. How does this divine agent of all the conquest and victory of God, relate to us. Verse 10, we're filled in Him. All that we need is in Him. Notice from verses 11 through 15 that Christ is not one step in the gospel. Right? Uh, There are ways of defining the gospel that are helpful that go something like this. Uh, You have God, He created us. You have man and we fell and then Jesus saves and then we are reunited with him. So Jesus kind of only shows up in one step of the gospel. It's it's helpful maybe to get the idea across to a non-believer, but the truth here is this, that Jesus is there from start to finish. Everything God does from creation to the eternal state is in and through Jesus. He's the main point of every step of the gospel. Verse 15, notice this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Make no mistake, if Satan could have stopped the crucifixion, he would have. That was his defeat. In Christ, God made the final triumphant victory over the powers of the enemy, and put them to open shame. There's this amazing role reversal in the cross. There Jesus is hanging, dying, bleeding out, suffocating. And he's, (laughs) all the movies aside, he's not wearing any clothes. Open shame, same idea. But in that, 
cross, in that shame, in that pain, in that being brought low, he puts all the authorities and powers, the powers of darkness to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That man mangled and dying on the cross is the victory of God. It's amazing. Also, the word of Christ frees us. We'll go through these quickly. Verse 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I think there are three sections here. Um, I won't have time to address why. I think there's three different false teachings going on. But we're freed from the shadow of the law. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in Christ we are freed from the shadow, the shadow we form, the shadow we preview of the law of Moses. Verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism of worship of angels, going on to detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The Word of Christ frees us from false spiritual life. If you ever felt uh, maybe bad or like you're missing out on something when someone else begins describing their spiritual experiences. Things happening in their heart, hearing things, being really moved and affected, having a deep sense of calling and all of these these feelings. Jesus liberates us from false spirituality because Jesus Christ is the head. Anything that you've got as a spiritual experience that isn't in and through Jesus and that does not lead you to more knowledge of Him and more more love of Him and more dependence on Him and more living life like Him, I'm not interested in. Because it's not holding fast to the head. Number three, Jesus, the word of Christ, frees us from hopeless attempts to be holy. Verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulation? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Jesus, the word of Christ, his message, the message about Christ, liberates us from false attempts, hopeless attempts to be holy. You can try every type of severity and straining and white-knuckling you want to, To try and be a better person. You can put all the rules you want to on yourself above and beyond God's requirements to try and kill the flesh. But if it is not wielding the word of Christ to put to death the flesh, as we'll see in chapter 3, it's of no value at all. Are all of your rules about the rules about the rules? Just like the Pharisees, those appeal to the flesh because they make us seem wise. These have an appearance of wisdom, he says. But they have no value. They don't don't increase your holiness even a smidgen. You know why? Because it's not from faith. So even if you are able to rein in the flesh in some way from an outward point of view, it's not from faith, so it doesn't deal with your guilt problem. It doesn't deal with God's wrath against your sin because you're not trusting in the head. You're not trusting in Christ. You're not... Fighting the flesh through your union with Him. You trying to fight the flesh with more rules is like trying to bring a BB gun to a modern battlefield. Or trying to fight a forest fire with a squirt gun. But when you bring the Word of Christ to battle against the flesh, that's like a stealth bomber and the most advanced hacker on a battlefield or or a torrential rain to put a stop to a forest fire. They have no value. 
They have appearance of wisdom. That's what makes them so dangerous. They sell books. They're on the Christian radio station. Ways to reign in the flesh that aren't connected to Christ and his message. Also, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The word of Christ gives new life. If you then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, will also appear with Him in glory. The word of Christ gives you a completely new life, not just a a new way of living, which we'll see in a second as we quickly read through the rest of chapter three. But it gives you a fully new identity. Notice that this is how Paul wants us to fight the flesh. Chapter two and chapter divisions aren't there in the original. Chapter two ends with this idea, all of this false wisdom can't help you at all in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So how are we going to stop the indulgence of the flesh? Realize what God has done for you in Christ and what He has made you into. You've been raised with Christ. So therefore, seek the things that are there where He is because that's where your life is. If indeed you've been raised with Him, if indeed you've been united with Him, if indeed this Word has taken root in your heart and you are truly His disciple Set your minds on things above. Do you believe, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I don't know a more powerful way to combat the flesh and to combat despair, and to combat any other thing that tries to derail your faith than believing the promises of God about what He will do one day. These truths are otherworldly. They're far-reaching. This is the message of the gospel. This is the word of Christ. And now we see that the word of Christ gives power over the flesh. Verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. We read about that with 1 Corinthians 6. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge after the image of its creator, where there is not, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. So much I could say about this. I know we're running short on time. Bear with me. This is not a simple statement about uh, do's and don'ts. Or the don'ts first, and then the next verse is we get to the do's, right? This isn't just in isolation. Understand where this occurs in the teaching about Jesus. Verses 1 through 4 occur before 5 through 11. You are enabled now to put to death the deeds of the flesh because of what Christ has done in you already. The word of Christ taking root in your heart is the strength and power and efficacy you need to put these things to death. And you must, you must, or else there's no inheritance for you. Do not be deceived. But because of what Christ has done, because who he has made you to be, what he has equipped you with in your mind and in your heart, you can now obey. I promise you, if you connect yourself to the glory of all that Christ has done, sin will become less and less appealing to you. The truth, friends, is that what defeats sin and the flesh and the old self is not willpower. You don't just need more willpower. 
That's trying to use the flesh to fight the flesh. It is delight and reveling in the superior joys of God's mighty acts in Christ Jesus for all time and for you. This is a trustworthy statement. I've never found it to not be true. It is impossible to sin while your heart is filled and your mind fixed on the glory and majesty of these things. Can't be done. The word of Christ also gives us power for holiness. So we're not just supposed to put things off and stop acting certain ways. We're supposed to act certain ways because we are God's chosen ones. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. What gives you power for forgiveness is realizing how much Christ has forgiven you, how much God has forgiven you in Christ. So you also must forgive. Above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And now we come to the text that we'll be focusing on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I think verses 16 and 17 then wrap up the whole exhortation. He's concluding his whole exhortation. He goes to more practical matters. If you want a title or heading over the rest of the book, we just don't have time to go through all of it. But the word of Christ in the family, work, missions, and farewells, right? Just kind of as as a junk drawer for the rest of the, the book. But he really does finish up his main theological exhortation with verse 17. So I want to close with a few questions. Do you have a desire to grow in your knowledge of the Word of Christ? As we've read through Colossians 1-3, through the majority of it at least, and as I've spoken about what God has accomplished through Christ, do you want to know more about that? Do you want to know what the Word of Christ is? Do you want to know what it means to let it dwell in us richly? Do you want to know what it takes to make that happen? Or do you just assume that it's already the case? Or are you so distracted by other things that it's out of sight, out of mind, and just can't wait until Pastor Joshua's done? Young people, if God's Word, if the Word of Christ finds no place in your heart, you will eventually want to kill Jesus. I'm just restating what Jesus says. I'm not trying to be a shock jock. If you won't let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, adults, then you'll love your hobbies more than Jesus and wish that he didn't put demands on your life. His word must dwell in you richly. This big, full picture of all that God has done in Jesus and all that he is doing in Jesus and all he promises to do through Jesus has everything to do with you. And I I cannot compete with your hobbies and your interests. And I'm not going to try. I'm not authorized by the Bible to compete with entertainment. But what I can do and what I am authorized to do by the Holy Spirit is speak biblically and compellingly about the Word of Christ and pray like a madman that He would use it to awaken you. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Two more questions and we're done. Is this what you mean when you say you believe? Is this the faith that you hold? Is this what you mean when you say you believe the gospel? Or do you just mean that, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus and his death had something to do with my sins? And I hope it's true one day. Or do you see this, this massive 
from before all time till after time is done, picture of what God is doing in Christ, defeating all of his enemies in him, and his summoning you to him in Christ, and say, yes, that's mine. I'm in. I want to be right alongside the power and work of God to make Christ preeminent. I want him to be preeminent in my life too. Or are you bored by this? The only application beyond what has already been said in the text is just for you to say yes. The way you're connected to this is belief that it's true. Seeing it and delighting in it and saying yes. That's what my life is about. So say yes today. Let's pray. Father, words fail to communicate the glory of the word of Christ and how far-reaching its implications are and how grand your work is. But you've given us words. You've inspired your apostles by your spirit to tell us what the word of Christ is. Please, make it clear to our souls. Bring to remembrance all the things that have been said. Help us dwell on them. May the word of Christ itself dwell in us richly. In Jesus' name, amen.